Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. This week on the Boss Podcast, Rick Nucci brings us his informative and witty talk from Boss 2018. We see that there are many factors to take into consideration before we start throwing in the towel on humanity and bowing down to our AI counterparts and that the hype of every innovation in history has faced its fair share of misconstrued fear and hype. Rick Nucci has over 20 years of experience in creating category-leading software solutions and companies. Currently the CEO and co-founder of Guru, a company based on empowering others to do their jobs, and prior to that was the founder and chief technology officer of Bimi, which defined and led a new segment as the first ever cloud integration platform as a service. Don't forget to register for the Boss newsletter and get new talks and insights direct to your inbox. Visit businessofsoftware.org update to find out more. Happy listening. Hello, good afternoon. My name's Rick, great to see everyone. Um, I, I didn't mean to advance that quite so quickly. Hello, welcome back from lunch. I'm gonna try to recaffeinate you with my words. We'll see how successful I am. Um, this is my, uh, my first time here. If my white lanyard wasn't um, telltale enough, my choice of song probably gave that away. That's probably the opposite of Motorhead, wouldn't you say? If you were to say, what's the extreme opposite? A Grateful Dead song would probably be, yeah, perfect. Well, thank you, sir, thank you. See, Mar he's so welcoming. Um, it's actually a cover of Touch of Grey by War on Drugs, who's from Philadelphia, which is where I'm from favorite city in the country. Thank you, from Philadelphians, that's fantastic. Uh, cool, so I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna talk to you guys today about um, AI hype and the future of humanity. It sounds a bit lofty. Um, the last time I was in front of a group of people was not that long ago, but it was to officiate um, a wedding ceremony. First time I had ever done that, I had a blast doing it. My goal for that ceremony was I wanted to have the audience laugh a little and cry a little. I accomplished that goal. My goal today is to minimize the number of eye rolls that happen across this audience. Because <laughs> we are talking about AI after all. All right, so um, as I mentioned, my name is Rick. Uh, I am the co-founder and CEO of Guru, uh, headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Before that, I started a company called Boomi, which was in the cloud integration world. Uh, we started that company in 2000. That company was eventually acquired by Dell many years later. Um, working there and, and, and going through the growth of Boomi and then working at Dell, I lived the pain that Guru now solves um, and so, so left and started um, Guru in, uh, in 2013. So, you know, a lot of what I'll talk about and when I talk about hype, I'm talking about in the context of enterprise software and kind of going through um, various hype cycles, being a participant in them, observing them, um, and laughing at them. And so I'll uh, share some reflections on that. Um, also talk a little bit about some of the AI work um, we did at Guru, the goal being to share some things that I think um, went well and to share some things uh, that didn't go so well. And, uh, and hopefully you can, uh, if you're thinking about embarking on any AI projects, maybe uh, a few of those nuggets could help you uh, step over some things. Cool, so um, I mentioned started in 2013. The, the thing we talk about in every town hall uh, is we believe the knowledge you need to do your job should find you when you need it. So we're trying to uh, change the behavior of searching for something out of context, wondering if it's right, um, which is typically what happens when you use things like wikis and instead bringing that um, into your workflow. We work with uh, a lot of sales and customer service organizations. Customer service is something I'm particularly excited about and we'll be sharing uh, some thoughts um, there today as well. Um, and uh, tend to focus on companies that are sort of um, growing quickly, adding a lot of people um, to their, their customer facing teams. So growing a lot of sales folks, growing a lot of customer service where they're you know, feeling the pain of this. Um, we uh, talk about this sort of this loop. Um, we, we collect, we verify the accuracy, and we embed and empower that knowledge um, and make it accessible to folks who need it um, to give a little bit of context about what, um, what Guru does. Um, and so enough about that. I'll move on here to um, talking a little bit about 
um, AI. And I always like to start with a quick, this is not going to get technical um, at all, so sorry if that um, was your hope. My guess is it wasn't. Um, but I do like to level set some of the terminology um, that people tend to throw around a bit liberally when they talk about artificial intelligence. So obviously at the very top there we have the field of computer science. Within that um, is uh, artificial intelligence, incorporating human intelligence, simulated human intelligence into machines. And then within AI are subfields, uh, one of which is called machine learning, which is a, a phrase that you probably hear people use interchangeably with AI. It's actually a subset of AI. NLP, natural language processing, another subset or field of AI. There's a ton more. There's vision. There's lots of things being done. I won't try to talk about all of them. Um, within ML, there's a very specific subfield that people are particularly excited about these days called deep learning where if you have access to Google amounts of data, um, you can do a, a, a pretty amazing um, set of uh, predictive outcomes using that, using that data, um, data being the real keyword there, which is something I'll talk and share more about. Um, so it's uh, a really interesting time right now in the world of AI. Uh, this is the only technology that I know of uh, that we've talked about since the 1950s. And you can go back and you can look at um, the old videos if you're bored, they're fascinating, of people showing the first simulations of human intelligence. But this technology has been around for so long that it has seasons associated with it. And when things are going well, it's an AI spring. And when things are going bad, it's an AI winter. And there's been lots of these ups and downs over the decades. And right now, we're in an AI spring. There's a couple of reasons uh, why that's happening. First and foremost, um, if you think about two of the fundamental things that are needed to make AI work, it's data, and lots of it, and processing power. Cloud computing played a huge role in enabling more and more of us to be able to do those two things really well. The cost to store data has gone way down. The cost to compute vast amounts of data has gone way down. Sitting here by the time I'm done talking, you could set up your own very simple machine learning model and probably train it by the time we're done. I don't know that it would do anything useful, maybe predict the next shirt Mark's gonna wear, but nonetheless, you could, you could do that. And that, yeah, pretty, it was pretty spot on, yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so, so that's played a huge role. The other thing that's played a huge role, uh, I'm not trying to coin a phrase here by saying enterprise UX. What I'm talking about is we used to go to work and we used to think, oh yeah, like the tools I use at work suck and it's my job so it's kind of I deal with that. And the stuff I enjoy using uh, is like my Spotify and the things I use like on my own time. And that's changing now. You know, I think as software companies, the UX game is being upped universally. And great user experiences have a direct correlation to the ability to do AI, because what they do is they facilitate the natural and simple input of data, and it's data that makes, makes the AI actually work. So that movement, although you could call it a side effect, has played a huge role in, in what we now call the spring. And it's good times. It really is. Um, it's very exciting. Uh, and there's lots of stuff going on, and there's lots of venture money funding, a lot of garage ideas, and there's a lot of really brilliant people working on lots of different things in the, in the field of AI. But what's interesting about that is when those innovation spikes happen, we enter a world of hype. And the reason why I cracked the joke about the eye rolling is perhaps you know, no greater time have we been so full of hype as a technology industry than, than things surrounding AI and a few other technologies. Gartner, this is my favorite thing they do. They, they put out every year what they call the hype cycle. They just put this one out last month. And on it, they plot every technology trend and they predict that every technology will go through this arc where something will go up the curve as an exciting innovation happens that sparks this new thing that could happen. It gets to the top of that curve and it goes down into the trough of disillusionment, which sounds so dramatic, um, where you know, 
all of the bullshit that all the vendors said the thing could do, it can't actually do half that stuff. And as businesses, you're picking up the pieces and going, what do we spend all this money on? And then coming across is the plateau of productivity, uh, the slope of enlightenment, then the plateau of productivity. So it really is amazing. And so every year they take all their technologies and they plot on this path. And it's amazing to watch, to watch it happen. Some things don't actually make it off the curve. They fall off. Um, right now, if you look, and it, it's an eye chart, so sorry, but a number of things, deep learning, virtual assistants, uh, are making their way down into the trough of disillusionment. Artificial general intelligence, they're saying more than 10 years away. And I'll get into that. It's an important nuance. Artificial general intelligence is what people write movies about. It's this true sentient, self-thinking, self-learning thing. That's a pretty far away concept. Um, and so taking those sort of subfields of AI, plotting them on this curve, we're kind of going into this trough of disillusionment. This is that same one from 2009. In 2009, cloud computing was on the same exact path and trajectory as AI was. In 2009, you had just as many people talking about it using words that didn't make any sense. You had just as many people dismissing it as a fad where it wouldn't go anywhere. And you had just as many people doing genuine, interesting, innovative things at that time. And if you look at the top of the peak of inflated expectations, there sits cloud computing. Today, obviously, it has since over those time, over those years, come down and hit its plateau of productivity. And now is most of how we think about you know, modern computing applications. And so as things go through this, um, and you know, when we were launching uh, Boomi, the company I started before, we launched in 2008 um, a cloud-based offering right in the middle of all of this. And it's just been very fascinating to me to observe the behaviors that happen, because there's definitely some interesting patterns um, that kind of go on. Here's a good example. We see articles come out like this. AI will soon write better novels than humans, according to a computer scientist. OK, few things on this. One, that will not happen. AI will not write better novels than humans, according to any computer scientist. Two, this computer scientist didn't actually say that if you go on to read the article. They said, perhaps in 20 or more years. Uh, I would argue if that's even going to happen. But, um, things get out of control. Jargon appears everywhere. Uh, it's interesting in AI in particular, it's a very technical field. And so you have a lot of data scientists very involved in the inception of these ideas and driving a lot of the innovation. And you see words and phrases like this put together. Makes use of machine learning, deep learning, and transfer learning to build a unique answer graph. If you're a customer service leader, do you know what that means? Right? That is not something that's talking about how your organization will actually perform and do its job better. AI delivered by AI. That was my personal favorite. I saw that at an actual conference. It was the actual stand-up banner. Um, it's so meta. That's what I love about it. Doesn't really mean anything, though. Um, we train a deep neural network model by converting historical customer service transcripts into numerical representations called word vectors. My point is, these things are being put front and center to describe this technology. This is not helping business leaders understand what the actual capabilities are and what can be done. And so this is a lot of behavior that happens. Now, with AI, where it gets really interesting is there's a whole litany of movies about AI, and none of them end well. <laughs> they all end with the machine winning. If you haven't seen these movies, summary, humans lose. Um, actually, it's not true in some of the cases. We don't know how Westworld's going to end, do we? We'll find out. Some of you might know. I don't know. Um, but uh, things go really, really badly. Uh, this fuels the um, fear um, that AI is going to impact humans, the, the fear that AI will replace jobs. And it's a real, it's a real thing. Uh, Andrew Yang is running for president in 2020. His campaign platform is universal basic income. Universal basic income is an idea that's made popular in the Bay Area mostly, that while we're transitioning to a world of AI-driven automation, that we're going to provide an income to help people do career transitions. It seems to me a bit like you're giving up, right? There's probably better ways, I think, um, to, to try to stave that off. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, someone's spending a lot of time on this. Uh, 
the first AI church now exists. It's called the Way of the Future. This church was started last year. I'm not kidding. This church was started last year. You will be able to talk to God literally and know that it's listening. So the view and the theory behind this religion is that rather than fighting the machines, let's go ahead and preemptively surrender and just sort of <laughs> praise, our, <laughs> praise our new sentient overlords uh, because they'll do right by us. So it's a real thing. But let's kind of come back down to earth and talk about where things really are at today. So um, this is a really interesting way to try to connect the dots between technology and biology. And I'm not going to get technical, but um, remember that AI simulated human intelligence. One way that you can do that comparison is by looking at the mental capacity of an AI system and comparing that to the mental capacity of an animal. And so along that line, that's what's happening, is essentially the size, the mental capacity of neural networks, which is, again, one of those subfields of machine learning, specifically built to emulate the way a biological brain functions, um, is growing at a nonlinear rate. And that's pretty cool. Today, 2018, we're at about the capacity of a frog, to put that in context. right? We're far away from where a human mind works and operates. As a frog, there are things already that machines can do better than we can. Uh, math. Um, but there are things that a machine can't touch, like human empathy. And that's really where I think it's important to stay focused. Um, and framing the conversation this way can be a helpful way to level set and to really, and to really get an idea contextually of, of what's capable right now. Again, the exciting thing is it is kind of going in an interesting direction, and it will grow non-linearly. One of the biggest things that will be correlated to that linear growth is inputs. Remember, AI systems feed off of data. The data comes from us and the things we do. So it started with text and keyboards. Then phones came out, and we actually went backwards a little bit because we went from being able to type with 10 fingers to two thumbs. And that slowed down our ability to do input. Now voice has become a proven usage pattern, right? We probably, a lot of us probably have some sort of Alexa device in our homes. Um, speech to text is real. It's fast enough. It's accurate enough. It's a real thing now. The Google 411 system. Did anybody ever use Google 411? Did anybody ever hear of that? Yeah. It's a brilliant way to train an AI system, right? Because you would call it, you would say what you wanted, it would come back with the result and say, oh, and if you want me to connect you, press one, which is the feedback loop that knows that they got the, the thing you said right. And then, and then in true Google fashion, they just turned it off once they had enough training data. Like, oh, no, we didn't actually want to help you. We just wanted training data. <laughs> and so, so, so they got that and, they, and, and, and built a brilliant you know, speech and text system. Um, you know, one of Elon Musk's projects, um, of his many, um, Neuralink, is taking this to the next level and literally hooking, you know, you're interfacing directly with your brain, which in many regards is the mother of all inputs, right? If you could, if you could input into a system as fast as you can think, the rate of growth of these, of these AI systems. And so, the inputs are a very interesting way to think about both the constraints we live on today, the AI systems, and also how that could kind of, kind of open up. This is a really fascinating way that I like to think about um, the other impediment or reality of AI, which is, as humans, our ability to adapt to any technology change. But AI is sort of a big one. So this is called The Telegraph, and this is from a great book called Thank You for Being Late, written by um, Thomas Friedman, that I recommend. I love his take on it. He's combining technology, globalization, and environmental you know, uncertainty with an optimist view. And I just appreciate the way he kind of thinks and talks about that. But he sat down with Edward Teller, who runs the, um, the uh, X projects at Google, all of the moonshot ideas, really amazing things um, going on there. And when he was talking to him, Teller drew this graph, and he drew those two lines. And the first line he drew was technology. And, and what he was showing there, and that's the, the line that's sloping like that, is the nonlinear rate of change happening with technology advancement. 
and how we are progressing as a society, but we're not doing it in a linear way. It's getting faster and faster and faster. But just because that's happening, the other line, human adaptability, doesn't mean that humans are going at the same pace. And he believes that we already have a gap. The we are here means that we're now at a place where the technology advancement has eclipsed humans' ability to adapt to it. And his point is, that's a problem. And as an optimist, it's a problem for the good and the, and the positive outcomes and use of technology. Um, it's also a problem if you look at it the other way and think about the likelihood of technologies replacing jobs. It's the rate of learning and the rate of reskilling, the rate of developing new skills to keep ourselves in a, in a mode where we're, we're evolving um, isn't happening fast enough is the argument he's making. And so I think it's important to level set that and keep that connection to humans top of mind, which I'll come back to here a few other times. So MIT and uh, Boston Consulting Group recently did a study because something that people always talk about is like, is any shit actually happening? <laughs> yeah, like are we just talking about, you know, hackathons and VC, you know, backed companies. Um, so they surveyed 3,000 companies. They grouped them into these buckets of pioneers and passives and folks in the middle and looked at, um, are you actually investing and are you actually learning? That's really where they focused. Are you, are you taking on projects? Are you teaching your team? Are you hiring data scientists? Um, the answer is pretty, pretty high, yes. Most of what you'll hear when you read about it is they were what would be called departmental or very scoped specific projects, which, which as I'll share with the things we worked on, I think is the right, the right move. The other interesting thing, and you can certainly read this, it's, pretty, it's a pretty interesting report. The other interesting thing is that the investments tended to be focused on revenue opportunities, not cost savings. And I think that's a pretty exciting um, way to think about it. And it's exciting to see how businesses think about it. They're actually looking at it to go after new markets, or they're going after it to acquire different customers, or acquire customers they couldn't in a more efficient way, things like that, uh, or experiment with pricing models in a more efficient way, um, things like that. And so um, I think that bodes well as a, as a technology industry. So I would say you know, my summary from that early days Real value is being seen by companies big and small. They're being applied to revenue generating, and it's happening across all different departments. Now, that's not to say that one company is going company-wide with these massive AI endeavors, and I'll talk about why, why I think that is. We talked about data already, but data is the biggest impediment um, to, to going wide in, in AI. And, it, and it's not just access to it, but it's the quality and accuracy of it. Um, so that was cool. So um, I'm going to switch gears now and talk about the journey that we went through. I talked about at Guru, we went through a pretty big um, AI initiative. Um, and I'm going to talk about how we thought about that opportunity, uh, what led us to focus on what area within our product and, and within AI, uh, and like some things I think we took away after doing it. Um, so. The first thing, there, there, there was a couple of things going on that led us to, to, to the path we're on. Um, the first, and something I mentioned before I'm super excited about, is how the customer service industry is going, undergoing a big change right now. Uh, we all think of, uh, and historically have always thought of a customer service department as a cost center. Uh, it's a necessary cost to solve customer issues, turn them and burn them, get those tickets done, get the customer off the phone as quick as you can, deflect them, any of them as away from you as you can, and it's all about cost savings. And what's happening is companies are realizing, and I see more and more of them every day, and they blow my mind with how they think about it, they are changing that belief, and they are turning their customer service org into a revenue center. And the way that they're doing that is they're tying their operational metrics to revenue outcomes. So, Instead of going, how many tickets do you churn through in an hour? They go, how many support interactions led to a customer converting from free to paid service? Instead of going, what's the average handle time of a ticket and how do we reduce that as much as we can? They'll say, how many open-ended questions did you ask your customer while you were on the phone with them? And I'll give a great example. One of our customers is Shopify that has just been an amazing example of this and what I truly view as a, uh, a visionary in thinking about customer service. 
And I was at an event they were hosting, and they, they played a transcript of an agent on the phone with a customer. And the customer called them and said, hey, I need to change the theme of my store. Now, the old way of thinking, as a customer service agent, that's a two-minute exercise, right? No problem. Go here. Click that. Click your theme. Cool. That's not how it went down. What the agent said instead was, how's your store doing? And the, and the guy said, well, that's actually why I'm calling. Aha, it's getting behind the real meaning of the call, which wasn't really to change the theme. It was to change the theme to see if that made their store perform better. Oh, really? Why, why, why is that? Well, I don't know. I've had this going on and that. I won't get to the gist of it, but at the end of the conversation, which, by the way, went on minutes and minutes and minutes, that merchant ended up tripling their business over the, over the next month. So what started as a call to change a theme turned into changing the way that that store owner actually sold. And that's the point, right? That's the point. And, and every dollar that that merchant sold what was, a, was a revenue kick back to Shopify as the underlying platform. That's the kind of thinking that blows my mind as I see these, these companies um, living that every day. Despite that, a lot of the AI conversation for customer support tends to be focused on the two buckets of things on the left, deflection and bots. Deflection, as the word implies, is deflecting the customer away from your customer service team. Think about that. Most of us operate subscription businesses, which means that when we close the sale, that's the beginning of the customer relationship. In the old days, perpetual software, it was the end, right? We got that big license and we moved on. Now it's the beginning. Who has the most enduring relationship with that customer? Customer service teams. So to deflect away the opportunity for that relationship is a missed opportunity to generate further revenue. Yet that's where the conversation gets applied. Uh, bots is a big one that everybody talks about. And I don't want to categorically take them apart. I have seen bots do a great job for example, while I'm waiting to talk to you, if you're my agent, while I'm waiting to talk to you, the bot will say, hey, while you're waiting, here's a few things. Here's an article that might help you. Cool. I'm waiting to talk to you. That's good. It's when the bot's used to simulate the agent that creates a trust problem between the customer and the agent. So all the AI technology is being applied to cost savings measures, right? It's getting applied to that old way of thinking of Turn them and burn them, deflect them, get those ticket volumes down, reduce average handle time. But no one's actually focusing on the agents themselves. And so we saw that and we're like, man, this really seems like a missed opportunity. Um, it really is you know, all about the humans and the partnership between the AI technology and the humans. So that led to some thinking and focus on uh, when we say coaching, what we mean is how can we help an agent respond faster and more confidently to their customer when questions come up. And that's how, that's how we think about the problem. And that's how we kind of got there. And then finally, the data, pro the data problem. So, so we also knew that to build a real AI system, we needed to have training data to train that model to generate accurate predictions. And so we looked at our usage data. So we had um, the, for the fortune uh, the fortunate reality of, of, of good, what's called Dalmau. And Dalmau is a metric that a lot of like consumer technologies use where it says, okay, of your monthly active users, MAU, of your monthly active users, how many of them are using your product every day? And we look at that relentlessly. And the reason why we look at that so much is we're in a category where people are replacing things like wikis with Guru. The number one problem they have is no one uses those things. And so customers are very focused on adoption and sustained adoption. Um, that's a big thing. And so we got that signal early days when we were figuring out Guru, focused a lot on that engagement data. But it's actually not about the ratio itself, but it's about that actual usage data that we were seeing. Because what we were actually seeing was specific personas using the product. Now, we've sold to customer service um, for a while now. But what we realized was the customer service agents of all our users were the ones using it the most. They were, their down mal was like 65%. It was even higher. So we saw a higher usage pattern. And then we could dig into that and go, well, where are they? What are they doing? Why are they using it? You know, I talked about how the knowledge you need to do your job should find you. You're doing something else, and you need knowledge to do that. So what are they doing? 
they're um, solving a ticket in Zendesk, or they're chatting using live person, something like that. And then they're using knowledge from Guru to help them do that. So we looked at the data to see that. The data revealed the, the AI project to us. So the combination of those things led us to going, okay, cool, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna focus on something that recognizes when they're using Guru and those contexts when they're using tickets or chats or whatever, we'll learn from that usage and then we'll, we'll, we'll proactively suggest that, that knowledge. And so that, that's kind of how we got to that decision process of deciding you know, what we were gonna actually build. And that's really what we, today, what we kind of call the loop. You know, what we call the core infrastructure is really just making it very simple to access and use Guru. That usage data trains Guru to be more predictive to you. And this is all done in a very um, clear way as you kind of are setting it up and using it. Um, so that's the project. So here, here are the things that I would say kind of coming out of it, we learned along the way. Um, like I said, this may, uh, this may be helpful as you're thinking about or, or refining you know, AI initiatives. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I'll have plenty of time for questions, by the way, to, and I'm happy to dig into any of this. So um, the first one, AI is only good as the data it can learn from. So I've talked about data a few times. What I want to focus on here, though, and why I said jack of all trades, is it can be tempting to go wide with the data set. And what I mean by wide is we could have said, oh, well, we're going to look at the engineering, engineers who use Guru and the sales reps who use Guru and the HR professionals who use Guru and the service professionals. We're going to try to mash all that together. And I think the learning was um, the suggestion and the accuracy quality is really poor because those, those are four distinct use cases. They're all doing different things. They're not working. Only one of them is actually working on support tickets. The others are writing code or filling out HR policies. They're very different things. And so being very, very focused on um, that very narrow data set. One of our investors, Emergence Capital, they're a thesis-based investor, and they talk about coaching networks. And one of the things they talk about here, and there's a lot on this slide, but what I, what I really want to draw your attention to are these quadrants and the way they're labeled. So on the bottom is non-proprietary data. On the top is proprietary. On the right is creation, and on the left is aggregation. So for example, um, on the bottom left, an aggregation of non-proprietary data would mean that today, you could go out and scrape a whole bunch of publicly accessible data, like Twitter streams, and use that to build an AI system. The point that they're making with that is you're not generating a data asset that is proprietary to your business. Your defensibility is nil. You're doing an arms race against the next smartest data scientist with that approach. Uh, on the top right is the opposite extreme of that, which is a proprietary set of training data, which means data that you uniquely own in your application, and that that data is getting created by how your users use your system. And when you have that going, you're truly creating something that is a, uh, a company that you can uh, sustain the incumbents. Because let's face it, we all know that the big technology companies are all hiring the best data scientists in the world as fast as they possibly can. So you're not going to win with the better algorithm. You win with the proprietary data set that's unique, unique to you because you can copy algorithms. You can't copy that proprietary data set. So focusing on the data, um, so critical. Okay, so in that hype slide, I had you know, people explaining vectors and word graphs and all that stuff. Um, that doesn't mean anything to, to a business owner, right? They're looking at an outcome. An outcome for a customer service owner is how do I contribute, uh, how does my team contribute to our company's revenue? That could be an outcome. How do I train my new hires faster so they can start working with customers faster? That's an outcome. How do I reduce the time it takes to close new deals? That's an outcome. And AI is such a technical concept, and it's such, so driven by technologists that it can be easy to get caught up in that. And we spent a lot of time thinking about this um, at Guru and trying to focus on that. And I'll go back to customer service as a good example. As a technologist, you can look at volumes of ticket data, and you can be tempted to think, Oh, I can have a machine do that. 
I can have a machine just look at all the tickets that came in, analyze them all, and then just start automatically firing back answers as new tickets come in. And as a technology exercise, yeah, that actually checks a lot of boxes. Large volume of data, it's proprietary. You can build a lot of cool insights on that. The problem is, should you actually do that? Should you have a machine be interacting with your customer? Not could you, but should you? There's a really cool analogy. So Forrester talks about, Forrester basically predicts that there's gonna be this rush to do what I'm talking about, and a lot of companies are gonna do this, because they're gonna think about the cost savings opportunity of doing this, and that CSAT's actually gonna go down. It's not gonna go up. And customers are actually going to be not happy. <laughs> Right? You know, when we come in and we need customer service, we're, we're oftentimes not in the best of spirits. Right? Uh, we're not happy. You all remember a really shitty customer service experience you had, I guarantee you, and you probably had one in recent memory. And you probably also remember an amazing white glove service experience you had too. And we're compelled to write about those and talk to people about those. We're more compelled when they're shitty, unfortunately. But when they're really good, we'll tweet about those and we'll talk about that. Um, let's make more of those, right? And so, um, so the prediction here is that there's gonna be a rush to do that, right? You might remember in the 80s when companies like Dell started outsourcing their call centers to foreign countries. But the problem was they weren't teaching the folks they were outsourcing to um, the language skills they needed to properly go through the issues. They looked at it through a monocular lens of cost savings and what happened, right? You can read the, how that all went. Outsourcing is a huge industry today, but it's fundamentally different than the way it was back then. I think there's a very similar path um, that'll happen here. Three, I talked about UX in the beginning. I talked about the, um, the enterprise user experience. The idea that um, we have the same expectation of the experience with the tools we use at our jobs as we do the things we use um, at home, uh, or, 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 or at least that, that that's narrowing. Our expectations are going up. UX matters more than ever. But, the reason in this context that it matters more than ever is a good user experience, an intuitive, simple to use UI generates not just a, a user who builds a, a habit around your product, but it generates that critical training data. And so when I talk about this saying connecting the importance, that's really what I mean, is, 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 is what, what we did, what we kind of figured out at Guru, I use that, the down mouse stuff, is we connected the success of our AI project to the UX of how the person would interact with the system. And we did not treat those as, as independent systems. They were viewed as one thing. And the team that actually worked on this was one team that was engineers, data scientists, UX, all working together. Um, and, and I think looking back, that was, that was probably the right way um, to think about it. Our design team was very happy when I put this slide in the, uh, in the deck too. They were like, hell yeah. Um, Cool, so closing the loop. So um, I talked about this idea of training the AI system and how what happens is data gets fed into an algorithm and that produces what's called a model. And the model is how you predict things. You can feed this system new information that it's not seen before and it will predict with a certain level of likelihood what to do next. Closing the loop is how you actually refine that and evolve it over time. It can't be static. And one interesting way to think about this, and most of the AI that we deal with today, is consumer-driven things. And those consumer-driven things, uh, meaning not enterprise software, those consumer-driven things are capturing a lot of data, but we're not getting anything out of that. You know what we get out of that? Ads, right? And so ad tech, has it been at the forefront of much innovation around AI, the problem is there's no loop. We don't get anything back. We give a lot. The things we buy, the websites we visit, the places we go, we give, we give, and we just get ads back. That's sad. In this world, hopefully, that doesn't happen, right? In this world, it needs to be a loop. And so, again, I'll go back to our friends at Emergence that have done, I think, a brilliant job describing this. But the way to think about this Again, they have a very you know, humanity-first approach to how they think about AI, and I very much agree with it, is capturing the brilliant outlier, capturing the creativity, capturing the new knowledge, the new information, the new thing from enough people that it goes back into the model and trains that system, 
and makes the general output better. And it's humans in the loop from the entire process. In order for that to work, you have to close the loop. So closing the loop very specifically, all I mean by that is, in your application, you have to know if the suggestion you put in front of the person was right or not. You have to, you have to see how they react. And that could be done implicitly or explicitly. In our example, when we put a suggestion in front of you, there's a ticket open, they're asking a question. We say, hey, we think this FAQ might help with this question right now. We know if you actually used that. If you read it or if you copied it, we know that. And so that's implicit usage. We also have a way where you can give us feedback. Like that was a shitty suggestion. Your, your algorithm needs work. You can give us a thumbs down and you can tell us that. That's what I mean by closing the loop. It's, it's capturing the result of that. Um, but this idea of human in the loop, I think, is a really exciting way to demonstrate that, that idea. Five, and I have one more. Your model can start out dumb. So again, we're simulating um, human intelligence here using advanced math to oversimplify it. Um, the mechanics of building a true um, AI system that learns and evolves is really hard. Um, having uh, gone through it with our team, um, it's very hard to do because it does take the full end-to-end -end Discipline. I talked about from the UX all the way through to the, the ops um, at the end of actually generating that model and having it scale. Half of what makes it hard is that actual machinery that I just described. It's different than software engineering, right? Because software engineering is static. It doesn't change and evolve. We hard code things to do specific things. We deploy that to production, and they do it. This is different. This is you deploy something that doesn't actually know exactly what it's supposed to do, and you train it with user behavior over time. It's different. And the specific part about that that's so hard is getting that mechanism in place of a user takes an action, that trains an algorithm which feeds a model, which generates a suggestion, which you do something with. So just getting that right is really hard. Then you could spend quite literally forever perfecting it to be the smartest thing ever in the world. The biggest learning I think we had here is you don't, you don't actually have to do that. <laughs> I think what's much, much better and puts you in a much better position of um, the ability to move fast with your customer is to get that machinery I was describing in place first. Evolving it with them, using the data they're going to use with their own teams to train it, that's something you can do in partnership with them. So you can evolve the model, you can, set, you can iterate it, you can make it better, you can improve it. That's so much easier to do once you have that foundational stuff in place. So in many ways, the way we talk about it now inside of Guru is, as we build new projects and generate new models, we want to make them dumb at first. We don't want them. We'd love for them to be smart. But we're okay if they're dumb at first, because what we really are trying to get in place is our best guess, but that, that machinery to be able to evolve it from there. And that can be a little bit freeing when you actually do uh, accept this idea because it is tempting and you have, you know, you're working with data scientists who are very um, intelligent, highly educated, um, academically focused. They've probably been in academics more than they've been in a professional work environment in a lot of cases um, that will sort of seek and desire that close to perfection. Um, but great when you can free that thinking and go, you know, let's iterate. Um, and so a dumb model can be, can be a great way to do that. And then finally, um, and I think this is just so important for so many reasons, um, think about AI projects to empower people versus replacing. There's so much talk now about automating, automating, automating. One, I think it's just doing a disservice to the, to the industry. Um, I think it's doing, a, a, because I don't think it's right, I don't think you will actually be able to automate away entire, um, entire jobs anytime soon. But I think there's absolutely opportunities to partner. It's a partnership. And in that partnership, allow humans to be better at human things, like empathy and emotion. And allow machines to be better at machine things, like math. So to quickly recap, and then we got uh, some time for questions, I think, yeah. Um, I do believe um, AI is transformational. I love comparing it to cloud computing because I think a lot of that same hype behavior is happening all over again. 
uh, and it is the same pattern, and I think Gartner does a nice job of drawing that uh, trough of disillusionment. <laughs> Um, while the hype's huge, there are real gains to be uh, achieved today. Again, I think those real gains are starting on small, focused things. I was having this conversation earlier today, and the person I was talking to said, yeah, like when I actually look under the hood and look at a real AI thing, it's like boring. I'm like, yeah, it is. Because it's not, you know, we, we have Hollywood depicting it as one thing, and this glamorous, terrifying, amazing thing, and then we have the reality, which is like, oh yeah, it automatically tagged a support ticket. Whoa, mind blowing. <laughs> and that's like, the, that's like the problem. Like if we can tone it down a little bit, focus on the outcomes, focus on point things that can drive real improvements in the way humans work, we'll be, we'll be on a good path. And then finally, um, instead of thinking about how do we automate away stuff humans do, what if it was the AI itself that actually helped us grow and learn and that teller graph I showed, what if it was the AI itself that actually collapsed that better and got us connected with that, that rate of technology change? Cool. Thank you, guys. I'm happy to take any questions. OK, as usual, you stick your hands up, and we can get some mics out there. So we'll start with Mark, and then we'll come down to Glenn. Um, Thank, thanks for a great talk, Rick, and I don't think you'll be replaced by a computer in the next 18 months or so. Quick question on your thoughts on AI. To how, much, how much do you think it is essentially 1950s neural net technology finally getting fast enough boxes and enough data, and how much do you think it is generally something that's new and revolutionary in the thinking space? Um, I, think it's, I think if I were to take the, the AI spring today, it's more about the former. It's more of the fact that we can just compute a ton more things. I don't think we have yet figured out how to do that in an efficient way that we'll need to do, right? You're seeing the new iPhones just getting the first real chip that's designed with a GPU chipset to like do the types of computations I'm only to do that just starting for the first time. So no, I think the spring today is much more about those three things, data storage, computing, UX which arguably are, are, are good hygiene things that you know, have been around, people have been thinking about for a long time. Dupsey. Hi, great talk. Um, uh, I was really interested in what you had to say about um, the past. I was recently reading um, uh, a very long book about Andrew Car Carnegie at the turn of the century, and he was talking about how uh, industrialization effectively displaced huge numbers of people um, at that particular time. And you had that graph where you said that you felt that um, the technology has now moved forward. Isn't the technology or some technology from the printing press or whatever always sort of doing that? Or how, I mean, people are often having this debate about you know, computers are going to take over the universe and we're all going to be screwed or whatever. Yes. Yeah, and, yes. and it, the same things happened in this book. And yes. we're still all here and we all have a job. So yes. could, you, could you talk about that? Yes, and, I, and I, I agree with that line of thinking. I think the one thing that's different today is that the advancement of those technologies is happening much faster than it used to happen, right? If you think about the time we went from horse and buggy to car, was, well, was over 100 years of time, right? So if you, if you compare that to now and how quickly things change and turn over, the real concern, the real fear, is that we have to continue to adapt and upskill ourselves, right? And thinking about jobs today that don't have a whole lot of that what makes humans human to do it, like driving a car, and that's why that's such a topic, is something that's ripe for automation. And so, uh, I think the opportunity we have and the optimist in me and a lot of people who think that way is um, let's get ahead of that and let's focus on how we can evolve with this technology and how we can focus on developing skills that make us innately human and not, um, and not spend our time on things where, yeah, we, those things will kind of get continue to get eaten away. Um, to that point, though, I think the other part of the argument is like, yeah, well, with each new technology shift that happened, as many new jobs were created as were taken away, 
I very much agree to that. And that's why I talk about, and I think one goes with the other, right? You have to rescale. We have to push ourselves. The way we think about institutional education changes over time. It needs to. It already has. It, continue, it will continue to. With that change, there's plenty of new career opportunities, but I don't think they'll look the same you know, as they do today, for sure. Thank you. Bridget, over here. Hi, hi Rick. Um, so I realize I'm going to ask the same question as everybody else, just in a slightly different way, which is how scared should we really be? Um, <laughs> but this is all, all, all we really care about. Although, on a different note, if anybody's seen the news today, Amazon's raised its minimum wage for its workforce to $15 yes. an hour, which is yes. kind of, it is a good sign, isn't yes, it, on the other side, is. that the human capital inside Amazon is being recognized and can't just be swept under the, you know, the wave of the machines. Anyway, my question is more to... Uh, ask you, on what side do you fall? And I suspect it's the latter, which is that Elon Musk said that Mark Zuckerberg was essentially a bit thick in not understanding the threat of, of AI. Um, and I don't think anybody really would agree with that, that, that Mark doesn't understand it, but clearly he has a different view. Why is Elon Musk wrong? Um, so I don't, think, I don't think he's wrong. I think there's a time context that's missing. I think if you listen to Elon Musk talk about this, uh, the infamous Joe Rogan podcast that many of you might have seen and heard where he did some things that he may now regret, um, he talks a lot about this exact topic. And his point is it's when, not if. But he, if you listen carefully to what he says, he doesn't say it's in three years or five years. And that's what gets lost in this conversation a lot is, in the next five years, in the next 10 years, yes, the rate of change is nonlinear, but, but you know, machines aren't writing novels, machines aren't even driving cars, truly driving cars autonomously. If you look at what most, most experts think, it's human-assisted still, things, th things like that. His point is much more, it is going to happen someday. And his point is, governments take decades to regulate things. This is a thing that should be regulated. Let's have the conversation now, so 30 years from now, when there are real things, artificial general intelligence happening, we're not being reactive. We're not waiting for people to die, and then we suddenly regulate it. That's, that's his point. I think when you see people like Mark being dismissive, they're thinking more about like today in real time. And I think that's at least the way I, my takeaway is that it is two very different things. Great, Glenn. And then Mark, and then Rick, uh, thank you for being here. The thing that I've seen a lot of is uh, IBM Watson, right? Uh, partner with IBM Watson, and they'll be your, your platform or your back engine on AI. And I'm curious what you think about you know, companies like software companies partnering with some sort of an AI, uh, I don't know if the appropriate word would be backbone or yeah, platform, platform yeah, sure. to actually leverage as part of either their product or their, their operations? Yeah, um, so uh, I'll give you the answer for a software company and then I'll give you the answer for uh, an enterprise where software isn't their primary line of business. For a software company, you're running a big risk of not having that proprietary data asset that protects you. You are, in a lot of ways, um, signing yourself up to have to get run over by someone because you're not building something that's ultimately defensible, right? As in software industry, we can copy almost everything else in the stack now, right? We can see an app and we can clone it in a month. And we all that UX you work so hard figuring out, yep, copied, and now I have that too, right? So what's left? Well, well what's one of the things that's left is that proprietary data asset. When you do work with companies like that, you have to be really careful when you look at the fine print, they're training a model using your data, not just for you. They're training that for their future use and future initiatives and projects. Um, and so you have to be careful with that. The enterprise answer, though, is a little bit different. It's, it's fascinating. And, and when you read that um, MIT report I was referencing earlier, um, these enterprises are almost behaving like technology companies. Like, they're almost participating in the hype like the vendors are. And they talk about the things they're doing. By the way, I think that's a good thing. I think that's exciting, because it, it'll kind of make us all maybe calm down a little bit and just speak maybe a little more plain text to each other. But they're, they're doing these projects. They're working with those systems because what those things give you, Watson, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, all have them now, is you don't need to have data scientists on your team to deploy these models. 
and there's a real blocking and tackling problem of you can't find data scientists. It's you know, by far the most sought after technical skill. And so in those contexts and use cases, it makes a ton of sense because you can partner with them, they can do that work for you, um, they're deploying those scientists. But you know, it's in any, in any use case and context, it's so important to know what you're signing up for. I talked about that AI is hard point. You know, that doesn't go away when you partner with someone like this. You're getting a skill set and a competency, but you're signing up for a long development project, um, for sure. So I think eyes open going in, it can, it can be valuable, but um, I personally feel there should be a lot of caution when you think about that as a software company. I think Mark, Alex, speak. Hey, great talk, thanks. Uh, um, we're building customer service software and we're using AI to basically vectorize and tokenize support tickets and knowledge beta articles. And we faced a problem where uh, how ethical would be to use one customer's data to train the model. Like uh, we have thousands of companies using our software, right? And we have millions and millions of support tickets and stuff, but uh, we, I mean, we obviously talk to our lawyers how is, are we allowed to use one customer's data to train the whole model and then use the model predictions for other customers? And they say it's totally no problem because it's not personalizable, right? But still, uh, still, we have to get a customer consent for this. And a lot of people are just so afraid that their data is going to be fed to some mysterious black box that will come back and kill them, or whatever. So do you have that problem in GetGuru? Yes. How, how do, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. Um, the problem is that the big technology companies like Facebook have kind of ruined that for us um, because those are the stories we read about with misuse of data. And we have to be, um, our, our view, Guru's view, is transparency builds trust. And so I'd rather have you say no um, than do it and hope I don't get caught and then you find out later, because you're going to find, you know, you're going to, you will, that will come back and get you, um, besides it just being not the right thing to do. Um, that said, if you are prescriptive and upfront about it, um, that will tip. It's the same conversation we have with cloud computing, right? It honestly is, right? Then it was like, wait, you're going to put my CRM in your cloud with all my customer data in your cloud? Yeah, right, you know, and, 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 and now that's, just second nature, we'll get there, but I think the more we um, try to um, obfuscate what we're doing with that training data, uh, the slower it's gonna be. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I, our view is uh, be transparent, be very upfront about it, don't bury it away in terms of service, and then um, even if they say no, that's still the better, the better path. Hi, um, thank you very much for a wonderful talk. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to ask this question, but do you have any advice for a data scientist who is building a coaching network for a company right now? Um, what are the things that I'm probably not focused on that could help my organization the most and cause us the less pain as we turn this over to our customers? And, and are you asking like white spaces where, where the coaching network's idea could still be applied that maybe hasn't been done yet? <laughs> I'm pretty focused on um, getting access to the data that I'm going to use to train my algorithms. Um, what are the things that I need to think about while I'm doing this? One of the things I got out of your talk here <coughs> is to think about closing the loop um, yep. and iterating on the stuff we're doing, focusing more on getting useful things out, and then planning on reacting to the, um, rea the ways our customers are using it. Is there other things that I should be thinking about? Yeah. Um, let me let me give one uh, give you one quick example. Uh, so I showed this um, here, and I'll use a, I'll use an example of another company that that does a coaching network software called Textio. And what Textio does is you write your job description and you put it in Textio, and it tells you what words to change. Like, don't put the word ninja in your job description because then a female is not gonna apply to that job. Don't use words like rock star. So it goes through and does that. The way that it trains itself is it looks both at uh, your job applications and how quickly the roles get filled. It also goes and scrapes um, monster job, and, and it look monster, uh, job postings all over the internet that are publicly accessible. So, 
aggregation non-proprietary bottom left, there's a ton of that data. And then it, when the job comes down, it, they can reasonably assume that that job was closed. And so they combine that with the coaching network data on the top right. The reason they combine them together is the coaching network data alone isn't enough for the model work they want to do. So by combining them together, they're still generating that proprietary data they've created, but they're also con connecting it with a publicly accessible data source that anyone can get. So I think a lot about that. I don't know that we figured out that corollary opportunity for Guru, but I think that kind of, what could you augment your data set with that could be public and could be bottom left quadrant, that's fine, but when married together, makes your, your outcome better. That would be one that I think um, would, would be worth maybe giving some thought to. Rick, thank you very, very much indeed. AI is safe in your hands. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.